They get an early start on the Christmas season in some parts of Europe with celebrations that can go way back. But for an American dad raising his kids in Amsterdam, the Dutch holiday character of Black Pete can be a bit hard to swallow. And I have to smile, and I have to think, this is wonderful, and the kid's enjoying this, while all the while I'm thinking to myself, this is disgusting. Coming up, we hear about the nostalgic traditions that open up the holiday season in the Netherlands and in Sweden. Joanna Lumley finds a connection to even earlier days when she visits Greece. Everything we know about came from Greece in the old days, the way that we do medicine, theater, sport, politics, democracy, all these things came from Greece in the first place. And we'll take a closer look at the grandeur anyone can experience in the great churches of Europe. You go in there, there's statues, you look up, there's got a gold leaf ceiling, they've got paintings, stained glass, they got incense. Connect with the world in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Prepared to be awestruck today on Travel with Rick Steves. Actress Joanna Lumley shares high points of her filming odyssey in Greece, where she got close to ancient sites and close to memorable people. And we'll explore how you can put yourself inside some of the world's grandest architecture by visiting the great churches and cathedrals of Europe. But first, St. Nicholas Day is a high point of the holidays for many Europeans. It's a time for a new generation to be dazzled by the traditions of the season and to get acquainted with their own version of Santa Claus and his associates. In the Netherlands, however, there is one part of their Sinterklaas tradition that's become a point of contention in recent years. American Jonathan Gruber tells us how he feels stuck in the middle of a spectacle that the Dutch put out for their kids this time of year. It's one that makes many non-Dutch people anything but merry. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I understand you've got a 5-year-old and a 10-year-old. That's right. What's Christmas like in the Netherlands? Okay, well, Christmas is not like Germany, for example, where they have, they're really big on Christmas in Germany, you know, Weihnachten, and they have big markets all over the country, and it's, you know, people are drinking mulled wine, and it's, and it's really fantastic. Now, Christmas in the Netherlands is traditionally very subdued, and the reason that's the case is because they've already had the gift-giving holiday on the 5th of December. Ah. And that holiday is called Sinterklaas. And... This is the way Sinterklaas works, okay? Sinterklaas, first of all, is a former bishop of Palmyra in Turkey, but he lives in Spain. He looks like a bishop. He's very tall. He's very thin. He's dressed in white. He has a, a long beard like Santa Claus, except he's thin. He's skinny, like I said, and he's got a big bishop's mitre on his head with a big old cross on it, and he comes to the country from Spain on a steamboat, and he's the friend to all the children, and he, of course, is bringing lots of gifts. He hangs around for two weeks. He turns up in every shopping mall and in every school, and he's never alone, okay? And the holiday is otherwise very nice, and the kids sing these songs, and they're eating all this kind of candy, and they're having a great time, and they just can't wait for Santa Claus to come by. But, but the problem is this. I am an American, and Santa Claus has his little helpers, and his little helpers are called the Black Peters. And the Black Peters, the Svartapita, are men and women, white men and white women, in blackface, with big, giant red lips and Afro wigs on, dressed up like little medieval clowns. And they serve Sinterklaas, and they are sort of his hitman in a way, because if you're naughty then the tradition is is that the Black Peter will come and he will hit you with a stick and then he will put you in his bag and he will kidnap you and bring you back to Spain. Ah. Whoa. Okay? <laughs> you just couldn't do that. That's, that's That went out with the minstrel shows here. Well, no, of course you couldn't do that in the United States. Ah. And of course, as a, you know, as an American, when I saw this imagery, I was thoroughly, thoroughly appalled. Oh, my okay? goodness. And I have a problem with this. I have a problem because... As a dad, I have to pretend to go along with all of this because my kids love it, especially my five-year-old now, but also his older brother before him, you know? I mean, I had to sing the songs and I had to gleefully accept the candy from the Black Peters, from the blackface minstrel little black sambo imagery that I'm being presented with, you know, and I have to smile and I have to think, this is wonderful and the kid's enjoying this. Well, all the while I'm thinking to myself, this is disgusting. <laughs> you know, this is not how I was raised. When uh, the kids get older, we have to tell them that Santa Claus is not real. And then when your kids get older, you got to tell them that blackface is, is really not okay. You know what? I, I, I Sometimes it slips out. Oh, no. Sometimes it gets out there and I have to bite my lip because I don't want to spoil it for them because... 
you know, as little kids, right. they're completely innocent of these oh, yeah. things like racial tension and imagery and the semiotics of race, you know? <laughs> but, you know, Jonathan, you get a lot of that in Europe. I was just in Venice and they had a chandelier with a bunch of um, African heads on all of the candle holders. And there's this old-fashioned racism that survives in the decoration of Europe, which is just really quite shocking. And I didn't realize it even spills into holiday celebrations. That's right. And, and the thing is, what's really interesting lately is that it's becoming a real point of cultural contention because there are a number of people in the country these days who do think it's wrong. But anybody who stands up openly and says that they think it's wrong gets shouted down. There's at least four or five other people who are willing to shout them down. Now, this is the Netherlands, right, where all shades of opinion are tolerated normally, right. where pretty much anybody can say anything. And this is a genuine holy cow where if you touch it and you become critical, people get genuinely upset at you. Here's a perfect example. Last year, a Dutch black guy was standing at a Santa Claus celebration and he was wearing a T-shirt that says Black Peter is racism. And that's all he was doing. We know that's all he was doing because somebody filmed him. He was literally standing there. He wasn't saying anything to anybody. And the cops came over, wrestled him to the ground and took him away. Whoa. So in the Netherlands, that's one no-go area. You don't mess with Black Peter and Sinterklaas. That's right. What would Sinterklaas do if he had no Black Peters? You know what? He wouldn't be able to deliver the presents. There you he go. He wouldn't have his, his little enforcers. So, <laughs> Okay, well, now that's, that's December 5th. So you, the gift-giving and all that sort of chaos for the kids is out of the way. Then you've got a different kind of celebration at Christmas time. The Netherlands are fairly secular, but how does the religious aspect of Christmas play out at Christmas time? It's still a big holiday. Everybody gets two days off, first day of Christmas and second day of Christmas. And people go visit their families, and they usually have a nice, but not particularly special meal. And it's quiet. People see it as quiet. And there's no, no gift giving for the kids at Christmas then? Maybe a little. Okay. Nothing big. I mean, all the really big gifts, you know, the Wii's and the Nintendos, those have been given at, at Santa Claus. That was 20 days earlier, yeah. That's right. So the little gifts, they'll get a small gift or something like All that, right. something symbolic. Okay, Jonathan, so you have your Sinterklaas Festival on December 5th. You get your cozy family time at Christmas, actually. And then how do the Dutch celebrate New Year's Eve? They celebrate New Year's Eve by trying to blow each other up. Explain. <laughs> it's, o it's only legal to sell fireworks for three days out of the entire year in the Netherlands. Those are the three days before New Year's Eve. Wow. Out in you, as it's called in Dutch. And each and every year, numerous fires are started throughout the country. People become amazingly, amazingly irresponsible. And that includes me. And they spend, literally spend millions and millions and millions of euros just buying lots and lots of fireworks. And at midnight, they go off all at once. And it is, I have to say, it is pretty spectacular. It's amazing. You know what's interesting, Jonathan? The Dutch, the Netherlands, it's the most densely populated part of Europe. And a lot of my Dutch friends tell me we live like as regimented as if we're in a jukebox, you know, and it's just everything is super organized and, and very logical. But it also seems that the Dutch really vent when they can. You've got your queen's birthday. That's a huge deal. And it sounds like you do the same thing on New Year's Eve. You know what? I think there might be something to that. Yeah. People are pretty controlled, but when they get these moments to be legally out of control, they, they grab it with both <laughs> hands and go for it. All sure right. they do. Sure. Well, I hope you and your kids have a great, great Christmas. How do you say Merry Christmas in Dutch? It's prettige kerst. Wow. Yeah. Don't try and say that five <laughs> times with, with crackers in your mouth. All right, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Good luck parenting through all that Black Peter uh, confusion. Prettige kerst and a gelukkig nieuwjaar. Oh, that's a good one too. Happy New Year as well. Gelukkig nieuwjaar. Whoa, that, that is Dutch. That's, that's all I know. That, you could listen to that and you go, that must be Dutch. Thanks again, Jonathan. You're welcome. Jonathan Gruber is the former host of a show called The State We're In from Radio Netherlands Worldwide. In Nordic countries, the longest nights of the year are brightened by a tradition that, in recent centuries, has come to honor St. Lucy. She was a martyr in Sicily back in the early 4th century. Marita Bergman from Stockholm joins us now for a taste of how children in Sweden are getting all excited to celebrate the season. Marita, happy holidays. A big day in Sweden is Santa Lucia Day, right? December yeah. 13. Yeah, that's true. It's a special day. It's a day when we uh, greet the light coming into the dark period. We start in December and especially at Lucia 
to greet the light coming back. Greeting the light. And mm. it's done with adorable little children with crowns of candles on their heads? Yeah. In every school, in every elderly home comes children. A little parade of children bringing good cheer. Yeah. There are smaller children with the Sia, which normally is a, an older girl then with this crown of uh, living lights, candles. Actual uh, candles her on yeah. her hair. Not with the smaller ones, but... No. Uh, and then they are singing their traditional songs. And do they bring uh, goodies to the old folk? They bring cinnamon cookies. Cinnamon cookies. Uh, and also saffron buns. Who's Yultomte? Yultomten, that is a man that comes to everyone's home with the smaller children. Uh, so he's the, the Swedish Santa Claus. He's the Swedish Santa Claus, Yul yes. Tomte. is he fat? Yeah. He's fat, he has a beard. I understand in Sweden there's some interest in... Writing on the wrapping paper rhymes? Yeah. On the uh, presents, there is a kind of something written in it to give a clue what there is in the present. Oh, so actually the parent or the person working for Yulatomta yeah. will write on the paper a rhyming poem making clues to what's in the package. Yeah, true. And it has to be very, very mystical. I mean, it can't be too clear what is in it. So right. the better rhyme you have done, <laughs> the more you have to think. And the children, of course, the parcels lying under the Christmas tree can go and sneak and read also before. Oh, when I was little, I would shake the package to try to find what's inside. I could make a noise. Yeah. But here... You can read the puzzle in the poem yeah. that the parent wrote on the present yeah, wrapping. That's true. I so love is, that. Yeah. Now, what's the traditional food and drink of Christmas in Sweden? We drink this spicy wine, which we call gulög. Glog. Gulög. Gulög. And that is a kind of a sweet wine, uh, which is then spiced with different kinds of spices. Uh, very, very, very good. It's a hot wine. It's a hot wine, and you can get it also quite strong. Well, it's about 20% alcohol in it, uh -huh. so it uh, can get quite joyful on Christmas Day. We have Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Is there a song in Swedish that sort of everybody knows and everybody loves? If somebody can play the piano, they'll try it. Of course, there are uh, those ordinary songs also sung all over, like Silent Night and so on. But then we also have songs which we are singing, dancing then, if we have a lot of space at home, we are dancing around the Christmas tree all together, holding so our hands. So this is not just in fairy tales or romantic movies, but the Swedes will gather and hold hands in a circle around the tree. Yeah. Marita, thanks for a look into uh, Swedish Christmas. Can you um, give me a, a Christmas sort of greeting in uh, Swedish? We say, God jul. Good jul and uh, gott nytt år. Happy New Year. Good jul and gott nytt år. Yes. Tack så mycket. Varsågod. Intermåne la ingen vite vad du har sett och svar jeg Joanna Lumley joins us next from London with memorable tales from her filming adventures far off the usual tourist trails in Greece. Happy whatever you're celebrating. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Whether you're on an island, in the mountains, or wandering its ancient sites, there's just something special about Greece. You can almost hear its past glories echoing on the pathways you travel today. British actress Joanna Lumley knows this firsthand. You probably know her as one of the Bond girls in the movies, or as a co-star on Absolutely Fabulous and The New Avengers. Joanna fell in love with Greece right out of school. 
She recently finished filming a travel documentary series there in which she visits many of the places that the gods of mythology called home. In it, Joanna also observes the resiliency of Greeks as they work their way out of a troubled economy. Joanna, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, Rick. Tell us about your personal connection with Greece. I suppose always an awareness that because my sister was called Eleni after her Greek godmother, something about Greece seemed to stick in my mind, even though I was an India, born in India and brought up in Hong Kong and Malaysia. So the first chance I had to go to Greece was when I was about 18 and went with a group of friends. We stayed terribly poor in little sort of B&Bs. And I fell absolutely in love with it. We were on one of the little tiny islands, Poros. Mm. And I thought, I will come back to Greece one day and do it properly. Looking at the map, though, Rick, you suddenly see that Greece is like a country which has kind of had a bomb dropped on it in that there are so many islands and so many peninsulas and so many different parts of it and spread out with Crete right down in the south and Thrace up in the north and the Peloponnese jaggled with their fingers down their Corfu, almost European on the extreme western side. So it was a thrilling and complicated journey to try to plan. And also because Greece is the kind of mother of us all in, when you think of the things that came mm-hmm. out of Greece, music and medicine and goodness knows what, that there were so many different stories to tell, the Greek gods for one, you know, mm-hmm. um, the Ottoman Empire, everything. Anyway, it was just the most wonderful trip. So now that was when you were like 18 and 20, and I remember those days sleeping on rooftops and, and sleeping right. on the beach and people hanging yeah. out in caves and selling their hair. <laughs> yes. We didn't do that, but there was a lot of people just existing in Greece and enjoying the sun and the That's backgammon right. and, the, and the rocky and so on. Now, you know, a few years have gone by and you go back and you're working and you're visiting friends in Greece and so on. Have those initial romantic uh, assessments, have, how have they held up? Because, of course, Greece is in financial turmoil now and in a lot of ways it's, it's kind of a basket case. But uh, I what's know. it like it as, was you, heartbreaking. as you come back? Yeah. Well, Rick, we had the great good fortune, if it can be called that, to be filming the series just before Greek fell to her knees and that really huge financial crunch brought them down. The signs were there already. Mm -hmm. Um, In prosperous Athens, suddenly there were middle-class women selling things from their house on the street, spread out on blankets, um, just to try to get enough money to to feed. You know, I was uh, I was in uh, Reykjavik in Iceland, and the harbor was full of Greek yachts. And people in Iceland had bought Greek yachts from yachters in Greece that had to sell them on the on the push list because they were just selling them for next to nothing because they couldn't afford those old lifestyles anymore. It had all gone. And the the people in the countryside who up till now would have been seen as poorer peasants, the poor relations, suddenly were able to grow their own food and look after themselves in a way that the people in the city couldn't. And so they felt terribly sad for people in the great cities like Thessaloniki and Athens. They felt, how are they going to manage these poor people? Isn't that interesting? Because Greece has dealt with this depopulation where I think 40% of of the Greeks live within sight of the Acropolis. Uh, They've depopulated their little villages going to the big city and the promise of of employment. And suddenly the economy falls out and they kind of wish they were back on the farm. Oh, it's doubly heartbreaking in Greece because they would have made such journeys to get there from small islands, giving up an island mentality, really. But has Tiny the soul, place where has, you knew has, has that soul of Greece survived even in hard economic times? More than survived, absolutely more than survived. And mm. very early on, we decided to start, because if you're doing a program about Greece, you kind of have to go to the heart of it. You have to start in Athens and mm-hmm. see the Acropolis and the Parthenon and so on. And we went to a kind of bazooki evening of singing, which mm-hmm. is not not the old kind of balalaikas playing, but real rock star music. Mm-hmm. And they throw flowers and they dance and they buy drinks and they dance. And it's a land of song and dance. Mm. And even when up against the wall, they'll spend their last money on, rather like Zorba the Greek, dancing and singing and just saying, we'll get through it somehow. Yeah, you in, you interviewed a guy in your in your show and he, it was amazing yeah. how much money they spent for these flowers that they oh, would the just flowers. cascade oh, on no. people in the club, in the disco. I know, and your heart... But it's part of a kind of style and a culture and a holding a head up high to say, poof, this is just flowers. We can spend money on flowers. You know, it seems so impractical to me, but I guess it's important not to judge that because this is, like you said, a dignity. Hold your head up high. Times are tough. I can't afford my rent, but we're going to party tonight. Yes, I think the spirit... You've got to keep the spirits high. If Mm -hmm. people lose hope and lose energy and become despondent, there's no way out of the hole. But if they're dancing and singing, the chances are they'll pick themselves up. And Greece has never gone down before. It's come Mm. jolly close, but it's never Mm. come down. And she was the mother of everything, so she'll still be there at the end. We were traveling right through the economic crisis in Greece. And, uh, you know, when you're on the islands or out in the countryside, 
there's a resilience that comes with rural mm-hmm. living. We were more welcome than ever because they really appreciated our little boost to the local economy. And, and Rick, don't you think a lot of their resilience comes from being largely a maritime nation? They're used to getting into a small boat and rowing off to something. They're used to the waves slapping and having to go out and pick up the fish and do stuff. They're used to a proper, rigorous outdoor life. And when the storms blow, by golly, you're cut off on those little yeah. islands. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joanna Lumley. Many people know and, and love Joanna Lumley for her work in, in uh, movies and in uh, her uh, British comedy, Absolutely Fabulous. I really have an appreciation for Joanna Lumley for her travels, and she's produced a number of beautiful, beautiful specials for public television. They're available on DVD, uh, distributed in the United States by Athena. Her latest, Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey, that's what we're talking about today. You'll see it in your public television stations now and then, and you can always get it uh, on DVD via Athena. And Joanna, when we're talking about your series, Greek Odyssey, one of the episodes had a beautiful theme. Theater at Epidavros, myth at the gates of Hades in the south of Peloponnesian Peninsula, sport at Olympia, the home of the first Olympic Games, and religion at Delphi, the oracle, the great oracle where the god spoke to the people 3,000 years ago. Let's go through that right now. When we think about theater, take us to the great theater at Epidavros, or how do they pronounce that in Greek? You've got it right. They, they call it Epidavros in Greek, and here in English we call it Epidorus in our country because it's easier than saying Davros, I think. Okay. But they call it Epidavros. And it's one of these great, extraordinary ideas that the ancient Greeks had, which was that to become well, to be healed in these Asclepians, which is the kind of hospital, if you like, Mm -hmm. part of healing is music and theatre. So you've got to have mens sana in corpore sana, a healthy mind and a healthy body, but you've got to be able to have the arts as well. And I'm a great believer in that. I'm a great believer in the power of music. And as we've just referred to Rick dancing and theatre, taking you out of yourself and making you ponder what seems to be imponderable. So let's think about this for just a sec, Joanna. Music and theater as a part of healing. And this was a famous uh, healing center in ancient Greece. And of course, you've got the greatest theater. This is just two hours away from Athens. You can get there just by hitting the freeway and driving south. Epidaurus. What did you find there? And how did you factor that in or spice it into your your film? Completely spellbinding colossal theatre. It's not an amphitheatre because that's half. This is kind of almost in the round Mm -hmm. with just a little stage Mm -hmm. and the stage which is in the sort of middle circle of the arena where it's got a sweet spot in the middle where you can literally whisper, speak as I am speaking to you now, Rick, and it can be heard in every seat. I can't remember were there 30,000 seats? I can't remember. 10, 20, 30. It was a lot and no amplification and it sounds like oh, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, but you go there, you stand in the sweet spot that Joanna's talking about, your friends can be on the top row and you can hear yep. them miraculously. Acoustics. You can hear them miraculously. And it's built in a circle around it, mm-hmm. stacked up. We, we know it from football stadiums. We know it from sports stadiums. But these ones were built three, 4,000 years ago and are absolutely in perfect condition, perfect. Now, when I was there with my film, I had to, I had to do my own singing, which was really bad. But oh, you happen oh, to have I'd a connection that. with the greatest Greek singer of the generation. Tell us about Nana Muscuri. Yeah. When I was a young one, Nana Muscuri had television programs here. She was a Greek singer with black glasses, black, smooth, shiny hair. She sang with the most exquisite voice. And she was kind of um, a middle-of-the-road sort of pop song. She sang popular songs like White Rose of Athens and things like this. She had started off, she trained as an opera singer, and she was cast to be in the chorus of operas, to be an opera to be sung at Epidavros, and I can't remember which one it was. It was may have been Carmen or something. When she got there on the very first day of rehearsals, the director singled her out because she'd had a hit with a record and said, you are a pop star, we don't want pop stars with us. And she was sent away before she could ever sing a note, and it broke her heart, broke her heart. Her record sold more, I think, than any other female singer kind of in the history of time. So this is Nana Muscori, and she was in the 60s. Nana Check her out. And she was more than a Greek pop star. She was a pan-European pop star in the United States. Pan-world, because she could sing in any language. She could sing in German and Greek and Spanish and French and English. But she had never sang at Epidaurus, and you enabled her to stand there. We said, will you come here? (laughs) She was very moved, and you were too. I I saw that you even shed a tear up on that. I absolutely wept. I was standing at the very back, though, right at the top where you'd stood, Rick, to listen to this absolutely exquisite voice ringing out. And she decided to sing Ave Maria, uh, completely unaccompanied, of course. There was a group of little French schoolchildren who'd come 
just to hear and to see a Peter Vros for themselves on a school trip, and suddenly to see Nana Wascuri, who's very famous in France, they couldn't believe their luck standing there and seeing the goddess singing from the middle of the stage. Quite incredible. <laughs> And then you went down south to the far south of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. That's as far as you can go on the mainland in Greece to a place known as the Gates of Hades. This is in the Mani Peninsula, a very rough and tumble land of bandits and so on, lawless land. Tell us about the Gates of Hades. The Gates of Hades. Legend had it that you could only approach the Gates of Hades. You see, this was the end of their known world in those olden days. They knew vaguely that there might be other land out there, but they'd never been there. So the end of the world, the end of the known world, was the bottom of Greece, as it were. The extreme tips, the last fingers of the Mani Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So we got in a boat and we sailed round to see the cliff in which the great cave gaped its mouth, in which were supposedly the gates to hell, down to the underworld, where you would, if you sailed in, you'd be met by goodness knows what gods and demons and led away into the underworld. So it was a very, they treated it with some real sort of reverence and respect. And I wanted to do the right thing, so I brought some flowers to put in, some words to say, a little pearl earring. I'd lost the other one, but it was a real pearl. And I thought that maybe Neptune would like something Hmm. real. So I threw the real pearl in. We made these small offerings in because I found I was quite caught up in it. And as I don't think in this world, actually, Rick, we know anything, maybe Neptune is alive and well and stirring the deep. He did send some extraordinary things because the boatman who took us said they'd never seen, um, I think there were some seals on the rock. We've never seen seals here before. Mm. But as we sailed round, there were the seals jumping off. So here you've got, very strange. this is the mark of good travel, I think, is to get into the right mindset, regardless of your take on on Greek ancient religions or whatever. You're going to the gates of Hades. You might as well bring some flowers to toss in or something. You're going to the greatest theater of the ancient world. You might as well sing and then you were, <laughs> you were roaming around the Mani Peninsula, and this to me is the epitome of rugged, where you've got these yes. ghost towns. It's like Tombstone in America, where the law, where the bad guys were and everything, and these are ghost towns today in bleak surroundings, but there are people there. And when you meet these people, they scavenge up in the hills, and they concoct all these beautiful dishes, and there's more life than you would realize. And you met, just out of chance, an elderly woman clad in black. Tell us about that. The village was completely deserted, Um, occasionally her son would come and visit her, but she lived there completely on her own. We were driving up to there. It was in the Vathya region, which was where the... Oh, such infighting down there, Rick. Family fought family. They built towers. They kept themselves locked up. They would Mm. rape and pillage and steal each other's women and wives and daughters and then go back up to their towers. And the whole place had a great sense of bristling hostility. And up on one of the high mountains. So you walk through these ghost towns, and they're just collections yes. of towers where everybody paranoid would live behind their own family fortifications. This is near a town called called Cardamile. That's the best home base if you're looking for a hotel. And from just there, extraordinary. Beautiful. And didn't you find there that you you thought this is extraordinary? Here we are in the most spectacular scenery. Mm-hmm. What is there to fight about? But anyway, mm-hmm. that was the tradition down there. But up in this abandoned village, because like in so many parts of the world. Young ones want to go to, you know, big city bright lights. They don't want to stick up and look after a goat or two up on a high hillside. Mm. So there's a little old woman we found alone. And she said, come with me, I'm going to find some supper. Mm. I thought, oh gosh, what are we going to do? Off we walked and she was picking wild asparagus. With her sharp eyes, she could see the leaves and the asparagus stems, which is thin, called sprue in England where it's very thin before it's fattened out to the asparagus we know on our plates. She would just pick it, pick it, pick it. When she'd got a good bundle, her fingers were so quick, I picked a millionth of what she'd picked in 10, 15, 20 minutes. Mm. We took it back to a humble, humble little house, crackling fire in the corner. She looked at me, she had pale blue eyes, freckles, extraordinary colouring, and she boiled up this asparagus, put some oil on and some salt. Then we sat round her table and ate it rather in rather of untidy fashion and she looked at me with her pale blue eyes and I said are you lonely up here and she said why should I be lonely and she'd got some dogs some chickens some cats mm. she loved it she said she had the hillsides she had her food what did she want I really loved her I'd, 
I was pleased that I took her a present, Rick. I took her a proper, beautiful bone china cup and saucer in a beautiful box from the Buckingham Palace gift shop. So it's a copy of a cup and saucer that the Queen uses. Oh, she will thought, treasure that. Right. She will yeah, treasure she, that. It'll be on a rickety it. little shelf in her home. <laughs> yeah. Joanna Lumley was recently called one of the 100 most influential women in Britain by the BBC. And among her other honours is the Order of the British Empire, and she's also a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. Her latest travel special is Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey. You might be able to catch it on your local public television station. It's also available as a four-part DVD set from Athena. Their website is acornonline.com. And there's streaming video of Joanna's documentaries at acorn.tv. Joanna, when I was on the Mani Peninsula, we met a, a woman, maybe the sister of the woman you met, and uh, mm-hmm. we were looking at a what seemed like a dead church, and there was old, uh, you know, these uh, wicker chairs kind of stacked up and jerry-rigged uh, bare lamps hanging, light bulbs hanging from the ceiling and faded frescoes from a thousand years ago. Very dusty place, and, and then this beautiful woman walked in and she lit a candle and put it in the little candle dish and did her prayers in front of an icon, and suddenly that dead old dusty church was filled with life and the point is you got to get to these places and then you got to meet these people and you've got to put yourself in their reality and then you have these vivid lifelong memories coming out of your travels wouldn't you say rick to everybody is try to break off or get off the beaten track don't be bare led you know led by mm-hmm. the nose along to all just the tried of course you've got to see the acropolis sure. and so on but even if you just go down some side streets mm. if you're in a big city or if you're on the countryside stop the car Get out, walk. Anybody Just, can do it. You don't need an invitation to light it. a candle with an old lady in a church or to eat asparagus that were just foraged by the, the woman you just befriended and give her a little gift from your land and then you've become yeah. lifelong connections. And as you said, you have then something in your heart which you've never forgotten and try mm. to see it with your eyes rather than just taking photographs because I've noticed that more and more nowadays people get out of wherever they are. They take a picture That's and true. then get back in as though they're going to look at it later. They do this in art galleries and about beautiful monuments and things. They take the picture. I was just stampeded by a group of people with charging like they had lances and swords and shields and these were just their <laughs> little cameras. And I'm trying to enjoy a piece of famous art and they just stampeded right by me. They took a picture and then they stampeded over to the their famous picture and took it. And I'm so thankful that so many thousands of people are seeing the Mediterranean with the convenience and economy of cruises, 3,000 people on a ship. But it saddens me also that they don't take that as a springboard and then go back and venture a little bit away from the crowds and have these magic experiences that really do connect different peoples from different worlds. I couldn't agree more. British actress Joanna Lumley shares more of her remarkable journey across Greece with us in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Her DVD travel series is called Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey. We'll explore the grandeur of European churches in just a bit. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Joanna Lumley's telling us about the magic she found on the Peloponnesian Peninsula of Greece. She fell in love with Greece and its people right out of school when she traveled to what turned out to be the wrong island and still had a marvelous time. Joanna continues working in movies and TV and campaigning for human rights and animal welfare. We're learning about what she discovered while filming her delightful four-part travel series called Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey. We're going on this exciting tour around the Peloponnese with different themes, and the next stop was Olympia, and this was for sport. Can you imagine? Think about that. What was it, 776 years before Christ, they had the first Olympic Games. They called a truce, no more wars, we're all going to get together and have a competition, an athletic competition, and they gathered at Olympia. What did you find there? We found a really spectacular, the ruins, because it's not just the Olympic arena. There are all the temples and the dining rooms and the places where people would have been put up, hotels, as it were, and streets. And what a town it must have been. It was simply awesome. And I realized then that I think what we've gone wrong in the world is each time the Olympic Games are held, and they're marvelous, and I'm not criticizing anybody, we beggar a country by making it build an Olympic stadium, many stadia, which are maybe used or not used, Olympic villages, the money is spent. Why don't we go back to Olympia in Greece? Hmm. Simply 
build the most beautiful state-of-the-art stadium all time and all purpose. Every country in the mm. world that ever attends the Games to contribute to it, each four years somebody else can host it, but they should be there. They, the Games should be held in May when the weather is at its most clement. It would make absolute sense rather than everybody dashing off. I suppose somebody will argue and say, oh, the countries need the economy, but I dread seeing countries which can ill afford it starving their own people to build massive mm-hmm. look-at-me show-off stadia. Mm. Joanna, yeah. you've done a lot of good things for uh, Gurkha issues in Nepal and for uh, animal <laughs> rights. And I think you're you've not got setting a new me up against right the Olympic you, Committee. <laughs> you need to push that. I think it's. I'll join you. That's a great idea to have one uh, great. It'll be wonderful. Okay, but when you went there with your TV show. Did you line up on the starting block? What did you do? I lined up on the starting block. There was so many, I mean, everybody who goes there, it's like walking across the zebra crossing outside (laughs) Abbey Road where the Beatles did. You have to, what you've got to do is you've got to run around the track or you've got to do something. And it was interesting looking and learning about how the original Olympic Games were, which was, of course, there were no women ever contesting. All the contestants were naked. They had some hellish competitions, some of them where people died. It was the fight to the death, which was either wrestling and they had no holds barred. I mean, you could fight in any way you want to. Mm. I discovered about long jump that they used to have very heavy weights in their hands and they'd swing their arms from a standing position. They didn't run for long jump, they did it from a stand. And then using your arms with these heavy weights, when your arms flew forward, that would give you the impetus to do mm. huge jumps. That they would train, for instance, one of the greatest Olympians of all time, whose name, of course, I've forgotten now, but he used to put a calf, a live calf, around his shoulders and run with this little live calf to build up his muscles and stamina, make him the strongest man on earth. It was extraordinary. And it was instead of fighting, as you said. Oh, yeah. And a great thing about these sites, like Olympia, you've got the vast and and almost desolate and evocative actual excavation site, but the treasures have been taken out of the acidic air and put in a state-of-the-art museum on the same site where you can uh, go inside and in air-conditioned comfort you can look at all of the actual artistic artifacts from that age. And Olympia, you've got a wonderful museum like that. And also, your last stop on this little theme circle is uh, over the Gulf of Corinth and uh, under the mainland to the north of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, about a two-hour drive from Athens to, I believe, the northwest, Delphi. And Delphi is famous as the site of the Oracle, where people would actually go to get wisdom from the gods. And the way I understand it is, they had these priests there, and anybody who wanted wisdom and advice from the gods would go there for the advice, but before they got the advice, they would be debriefed and interviewed by the priests, and it became a data bank of all the known information about truth strengths and crops, fates, and and climate change or whatever was going on. And so these guys knew everything there was to know about the Mediterranean world. Other people would come there, ask for advice, They'd give great advice because they had already interviewed the enemy and they would believe that the gods gave them that advice and it just snowballed into making this place really, really important. That's the oracle. What did you find at the oracle? Well, at the oracle also we found the place where the oracle sat because the belief was was that they were high as a kite. The truth is that they were stoned out of their minds and the clever priests because the oracle the Delphic Oracle, who's now just world famous, you know, thus spake the Oracle, we say to each other as if that's the word. But of course, it was the priests who were manipulating by interpretation what people wanted to hear. And Ah. people would come and say, my wife has been unfaithful, should I leave her? And the Oracle would babble, and the priests would interpret the babbling and, and pass on whatever message it was. But we saw it in driving rain. It was the situation of Delphi or Delphi that astonished me, Rick, because it's very, very steep, up a very steep hillside, mm-hmm. with a cleft going down a valley which leads right into the sea. And as always, part of the Greek, the ancient Greek way, was that you've got to be able to see it from afar and be aghast at how splendid it is, yeah. because that sets you in the right frame of mind. If it's your hospital, the Asclepian, or rather like Epidavros, where the theatre was, with, with above it the temples and so on, is that you see it from a distance and you go, oh, is that the mighty place I'm going? I'm bound to get mm. better or I'm bound to get an answer to my question. So Delphi is really striking because of its remoteness. You get all the way up there and you think, my goodness, it was hard to even get there with our car. Imagine building this in the ancient times. And imagine walking, walking, walking. And it's a high hike, isn't it? It's up, up, up. Absolutely relentless. And on it goes. And Mount Parnassus just behind it, up in the hills behind it, these legendary names. Mm. I found it absolutely overwhelming. And the beauty, there's, there's such a lot there to see. And you can imagine... 
people humbly walk, taking their part in the queue and they'd usually have to bring a gift. These places were, it was like a toll. You know, if you were very poor, you could only bring a little thing. But most people had to bring a chicken or a, or a goat or a sheep or something or maybe even a little horse mm-hmm. and give it to the priests. Priests rubbing their hands and filling their pockets and keeping the temple going and keeping the kind of the belief going. Priests rubbing their hands and filling their pockets and keeping the temple going. It was an amazing sort of economic metabolism that was happening there. And uh, it's hard to put ourselves in the frame, the mind frame of, uh, of these people, but that's our challenge when we go there is to understand what was it like 2,500 years ago. Joanna, when I look at your special, uh, Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey, Several times you actually shed a tear, and I know you're a great actress and you could probably do it if you had to, but these just felt like real tears. Let's just close our interview with with some example of how your ability to travel and emotionally connect, as well as physically connect, heightened the experience and actually brought you to tears. I think by being in the moment is as much as anything. Put yourself there, be there. Never think about what you're going to look like or how it's going to be. If you're talking to somebody, and I have the great privilege of talking to people, usually through an interpreter, who have stories to tell, listen with all your heart and mind. And some things are just so unbearably moving. Sometimes the stories they tell us are either so touching or so unbearably tragic. Um, Stories of loss or incarceration or death, the stories of the leper colony on Spinalonga, the story of the old man who's brought up in what was then Turkey and was suddenly shifted over to Greece and had lost his motherland, lost his family. I mean, there were stories that really do break your heart. Put yourself absolutely bang in the minute. Don't try I never try to cry. In fact, I always try not to cry because I think it's off-putting. Mm-hmm. But sometimes when Nana Muscuri sang... I just couldn't stop the tears coursing down. Let yourself, let yourself be touched. That's so many cases were raised, especially in the United States. I don't know about Britain, but uh, just you can't be poetic. You know, it's just not not appropriate. Be poetic, be touched, shed a tear. I, I think in a lot of ways, these are people and stories that are crying to get out. And if you travel from a different hemisphere and connect with that person and really hear what they have to say, that tear is sort of like, Amen. It's yes, that that message is going to get out. You've connected with me and I'm going to go home a changed person. What a lovely way you put it, Rick. That's absolutely true. Well, it was inspired by your beautiful documentary. So, Joanna Lumley, thanks for joining us. The PBS special is Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey and it's available on DVD in the United States, distributed by Athena. And Joanna, let's talk again when you uh, come home with some more travel adventures, okay? Thank you so much, Rick. Happy travels. Thank you. Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey is distributed in the U.S. by Athena and available at acornonline.com with streaming video at acorn.tv. You can also listen to Joanna's earlier appearances on Travel with Rick Steves and hear about her expedition to the source of the Nile River. That's in the archives of the radio section at ricksteves.com. Maybe you've felt it the first time you visited Delphi, the Acropolis, or even the Gates of Hades. There's just something about so many sites in Europe that connect with the human spirit. And I think even a confirmed secularist can get a tingle when visiting some of the grandest cathedrals in Europe. I'm joined now by my original travel buddy, Gene Openshaw, to take a closer look at the grand churches of Europe. Gene and I started backpacking to Europe right after high school, and today Gene co-authors my Europe 101 book on art and history for travelers. Gene, what do you think makes so many of Europe's churches such a thrill to visit, even for travelers who don't particularly like going to church? Well, they're free. That's a plus <laughs> that's, that's right there. True. They got great art. Um, they're cool on a hot day. They really are cool. They're like natural air conditioning. And it's a great place to just sit down and recharge your tourist batteries. And churches are designed to be multimedia experiences, really. Especially if you go to a service. But they are. It's where art and statues and everything comes together. You know, think of like St. Peter's or really any great church. But you go in there, there's statues. You look up, there's got a gold leaf ceiling. They've got 
paintings. They got mm. stained glass. You got incense. They got incense. You got pilgrims all around. You got people, you know, in a lot of cases on their knees. I mean, it is. You get caught up in it's it. It's like a glimpse of the heaven that awaits the faithful. And that's what it was designed to do in an age before there was TV and movies and photographs or anything else that might help you. That's where you went to get a, a little break from the, the bleak existence of a medieval peasant. My favorite, throw in some music. Music Boy, does just... add a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. And well, you know, you can go to an Evensong service all over Europe, and anybody can sit in the pew, and it's, uh, in a case of, like, Salzburg, it's, there's an orchestra playing. It's like a concert. In Vienna also, the, the beautiful church in the, in the Hofburg has uh, a full uh, orchestra on Sunday. Music makes that church multidimensional. It's almost like theater. I mean, you've got the priests come in, they've got the costuming, they got, they're carrying props, their candlesticks. Their... Choreography choreography they they kind of walk through the crowd they parade up to the the altar and it's almost like a stage we're talking about the house of god religion in situ how to why these churches in europe just give us a tingling experience i'm joined by gene openshaw gene you know the, the famous churches are kind of a slam dunk but there's some less famous churches in amsterdam there's our lord in the attic amstel huh. creek the amstel creek uh, yeah. yeah and and that's a reminder that people had to worship in hiding for a lot of time from the facade it just looks like more merchants houses on the canal but you climb that little narrow stairway and they've gutted like three houses in a row and you've got this quite sizable church that was hiding and there you can see all these miniature uh aids for worship and, and you can think of the the commitment people had to worship even when it was dangerous in a different age and it's definitely very hidden. I mean, it's right in the middle of the red light district. You know, you're that surrounded by... That is a contrast. By... You're seeing these women in red windows uh, showing their legs, and then you step up this spiral staircase, and you're into a church where people would worship in Haydn. Catholics, back when it was dangerous to be a Catholic in Protestant Netherlands. Uh, I like churches that were built almost in the middle of nowhere because some some miracle uh, happened Like there. the Wieskirk in southern... Uh, South of Munich. Yeah, near near the Neuschwanstein Castle. Right. It's down there. You step into that interior, and it's like you're going to heaven, really. It's beautiful. It's, it's, first of all, it's kind of white. It's kind of a classic Rococo interior. Right. Basically white, but then you have these pastel reds and blues in the painting on the ceiling. Uh, you know, walking through that, you've got this incredible glorious incense over the top, all this Baroque festival of little cupids, and, but you walk through a field to approach it, <laughs> yeah. and you can smell the cows, you and you can the hear cows. the farmers, and you can look at the Alps with the little snow-capped <laughs> peaks. And then you look at this church, you step in, and at the low level, it's relatively humble, that's earth, and as your eyes rise up, it gets more and more ornate, and the sky, the heavens just on these great Baroque uh, frescoes or paintings in the ceiling, the heavens just literally bust through all the rest of the decor. Yeah, it's the perfect mix, like you say. You've got the earth on the ground with the smell of the cow pies, and then you get this glimpse of heaven, almost like an axis. I never where the thought two of meet. that. You go from the rustic, earthy smell of cow pies. You step inside. You've got incense. You've got a crucifix, a wooden statue that wept, or some reason that people finally brought all the money there to make this church so beautiful. And then you've got this glimpse of heaven that is powerful today, as it was a couple hundred years ago when it was made. Also in Venice. Venice is a place that you've got so much passion and so much Baroque uh, energy put into the churches, but you also have a lot of very crowded places. How do you break out of the crowds in Venice? Well, you could be standing, you know, St. Mark's Basilica is always packed with a big you line wait, that like comes for an hour there. to get in. Yeah, but if you just were looking at St. Mark's and then turned to the right and looked across the water from St. Mark's Square, you see mm. an island out there mm. and you see that kind of white church It floats floating. there like a mirage. yeah. And you go, what is that? It's San Giorgio Maggiore. Very easy to get to. You just catch a Vaporetto oh, right there. Ten minutes on the Vaporetto. Five minutes, and you're there. So somebody's going to wait an hour to get into St. Mark's, and then they're going to shuffle. It is like shuffling with a mass of people, like trying to get into a football stadium or something like this. And you can hardly stop shuffling through St. Mark's Basilica, and that's your, your famous church experience. But in the same time, you could easily catch that boat, go over to San Giorgio Maggiore, and have that beautiful church all to yourself. And when you step in there, it's like a textbook of uh, Renaissance lines, all these beautiful, simple architectural lines showing through. You can climb the San Giorgio Maggiore bell tower and look back and get this great view and just look back on downtown Venice. It's the best view of Venice in Venice. From, from San the Giorgio bell... Maggiore, the church that floats like a mirage across the water from the Doge's Palace. Gene, we talked earlier about how these churches are multimedia kind of experiences. What's a good multimedia experiences uh, for a church service that you've had? 
you know, for a for just a traveler, particularly a busy sightseer, I might pick the Jesu Church in Rome. It's a service that's only 20 minutes long. So even, you know, people who aren't into religion don't want to make that hour-long commitment to mm-hmm. a religious service can enjoy it. It happens every day at 5.30 every day. They have this short service around the tomb of St. Ignatius. Now, this is a very important church because this is like the headquarters of the Jesuits. And Ignatius was the founder of the Jesuits. And so when he's buried there, this is where it takes place. There's usually just a few dozen people that gather around. Uh And then the service starts. It starts with music. Kyrie eleison. Then you hear this big recorded voice. He tells the story of... Santo Ignacio. (laughs) And they got this spotlight that lights up different parts of the tomb. You know, you've probably seen it. It's it's not exactly a, you know, (laughs) I'm making it sound like this big blockbuster Hollywood spectacle. It's sort of homespun, really. It's kind of cheesy, in fact. But then finally comes the big finish. The church attendants, they turn a crank and the painting on the altarpiece lowers. And behind that painting, behind the painting of Ignatius is... A statue of Ignatius. Ta-da! He comes out, and the choir singing, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. And it's over. And it's over. And everybody steps back out. And, you know, when you step into a big church like that, it's quiet, it's ethereal, you've got the incense, you've got the sunbeams, you have your worship, you step back out, and it's that grinding, big city, Roman traffic thing. And in the case of Il Jesu, you're just a short walk away from the best gelato in all the world. <laughs> yeah. Hey, in fact, you, we could go to uh, Giolitis, which is just uh, a few blocks away, and have some <laughs> stracciatella. Now that sounds heavenly. Amen. Gene, it's been fun riffing on culture with you, as always. It's a good reminder that a little art and a little history, and knowing how to experience those churches, those glorious churches in action, can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Thanks, Gene. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the BBC in London for their help this week. You can join Rick and his guests as a caller on the show. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com for information about our next recording sessions. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.